Chapter Seven, Section One of the History of Mister Polly by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pratzelis. Chapter Seven, The Little Shop at Fishbourne, Section One. For fifteen years, Mister Polly was a respectable shopkeeper in Fishbourne. Years they were in which every day was tedious and when they were gone it was as if they had gone in a flash but now mr polly had good looks no more he was as i have described him in the beginning of this story thirty-seven and fattish in a not very healthy way dull and yellowish about the complexion and with discontented wrinklings round his eyes he sat on the stile above fishbourne and cried to the heavens above him oh rotten beastly silly hole and he wore a rather shabby black morning coat and vest and his tie was richly splendid being from stock and his golf cap aslant over one eye fifteen years ago and it might have seemed to you that the queer little flower of mr polly's imagination must be altogether withered and dead and with no living seed left in any part of him but indeed it still lived as an insatiable hunger for bright and delightful experiences for the gracious aspects of things for beauty he still read books when he had a chance books that told of glorious places abroad and glorious times that wrung a rich humour from life and contained the delight of words freshly and expressively grouped but alas there are not many such books and for the newspapers and the cheap fiction that abounded more and more in the world mr polly had little taste there was no epithet in them and there was no one to talk to as he loved to talk and he had to mind his shop it was a reluctant little shop from the beginning he had taken it to escape the doom of johnson's choice because fishbourne had a hold upon his imagination he had disregarded the ill-built cramped rooms behind it in which he would have to lurk and live the relentless limitations of its dimensions the inconvenience of an underground kitchen that must necessarily be the living-room in winter the narrow yard behind giving upon the yard of the royal fishbourne hotel the tiresome sitting and waiting for custom the restricted prospects of trade he had visualized himself and miriam first as at breakfast on a clear bright winter morning amidst the tremendous smell of bacon and then as having muffins for tea he had also thought of sitting on the beach on sunday afternoons and of going for a walk in the country behind the town and picking marguerites and poppies but in fact miriam and he were extremely cross at breakfast and it didn't run to muffins at tea and she didn't think it looked well she said to go traipsing about the country on sundays it was unfortunate that Miriam never took to the house from the first. She didn't like it when she saw it, and liked it less when she explored it. There's too many stairs, 
she said, and the coal being indoors will make a lot of work. Didn't think of that, said Mr. Polly, following her round. It'll be hard house to clean, said Miriam. White paint's all very well in its way, said Miriam, but it shows the dirt something fearful. Better have had it nicely grained. There's a kind of place here, said Mr. Polly, where we might have some flowers in pots. Not me, said Miriam. I've had enough trouble with Minnie and her musk. They stayed for a week in a cheap boarding-house before they moved in. They'd bought some furniture in Stamton, mostly second-hand, but with new cheap cutlery and china and linen, and they had supplemented this from the Fishbourne shops. Miriam, relieved from the hilarious associations of home, developed a meagre and serious quality of her own, and went about with knitted brows, pursuing some ideal of having everything right. Mr. Polly gave himself to the arrangement of the shop with a certain zest, and whistled a great deal, until Miriam appeared and said it went through her head. As soon as he had taken the shop, he had fitted the window with aggressive posters, announcing in no measured terms that he was going to open, and now he was getting his stuff put out, he was resolved to show Fishbourne what window-dressing could do. He meant to give them boater straws, imitation panamas, bathing dresses with novelties in stripes, light flannel shirts, summer ties, and ready-made flannel trousers for men, youths, and boys. Incidentally, he watched the small fishmonger over the way, and had a glimpse of the china dealer next door, and wondered if a friendly nod would be out of place. On the first Sunday in this new life, he and Miriam arrayed themselves with great care, he in his wedding funeral hat and coat, she in her going-away dress, and went processionally to church. A more respectable-looking couple you could hardly imagine, and looked about them. Things began to settle down next week into their places. A few customers came, chiefly for bathing suits and hat guards, and on Saturday night the cheapest straw hats and ties, and Mr. Polly found himself more and more drawn towards the shop door and the social charm of the street. He found the china dealer unpacking a crate at the edge of the pavement, and remarked that it was a fine day. The china dealer gave a reluctant assent and plunged into the crate in a manner that presented no encouragement to a loquacious neighbour. "'Zalacious commerciality,' whispered Mr. Polly to that unfriendly back view. Miriam combined earnestness of spirit with great practical incapacity. The house was never clean nor tidy, but always being frightfully disarranged for cleaning or tidying up, and she cooked because food had to be cooked and with a sound moralist's entire disregard of the quality of the consequences. The food came from her hands done rather than improved, and looking as uncomfortable as savages clothed under duress by a missionary with a stock of outsizes. Such food is too apt to behave resentfully, rebel, and work obi. She ceased to listen to her husband's talk from the day she married him, and ceased to unwrinkle the kink in her brow at his presence, 
giving herself up to mental states that had the quality of secret preoccupation, and she developed an idea for which perhaps there was legitimate excuse, that he was lazy. He seemed to stand about in the shop a great deal, to read, an indolent habit, and presently to seek company for talking. He began to attend the bar-parlour of the God's Providence Inn with some frequency, and would have done so regularly in the evening if cards which bored him to death had not arrested conversation. But the perpetual foolish variation of the permutations and combinations of two-and-fifty cards, taken five at a time, and the meagre surprises and excitement that ensue, had no charms for Mr. Polly's mind, which was at once too vivid in its impressions, and too easily fatigued. It was soon manifest that the shop paid only in the least exacting sense, and Miriam did not conceal her opinion that he ought to bestir himself and do things, though what he was to do was hard to say. You see, when you have sunken your capital in a shop, you do not very easily get it out again. If customers will not come to you cheerfully and freely, the law sets limits upon the compulsion you may exercise. You cannot pursue people about the streets of a watering-place, compelling them, either by threats or importunity, to buy flannel trousers. Additional sources of income for a tradesman are not always easy to find. Wintershed, at the bicycle and gramophone shop to the right, played the organ in the church, and Clamp, of the toy-shop, was a pew-opener and so forth. Gamble, the greengrocer, waited at table, and his wife cooked, and Carter, the watchmaker, left things to his wife while he went about the world winding clocks. But Mr. Polly had none of these arts, and wouldn't, in spite of Miriam's quietly persistent protests, get any other. And on summer evenings he would ride his bicycle about the country, and if he discovered a sale where there were books, he would, as often as not, waste half the next day in going over again to acquire a job-lot of them, haphazard, and bring them home, tied about with a string, and hide them from Miriam under the counter in the shop. That is a heart-breaking thing for any wife with a serious investigatory turn of mind to discover. She was always thinking of burning these finds, but her natural turn for economy prevailed with her. The books he read during those fifteen years. He read everything he got, except theology, and as he read his little unsuccessful circumstances vanished, and the wonders of life returned to him. The routine of reluctant getting up, opening shop, pretending to dust it with zest, breakfasting with a shop egg underdone or overdone, or a herring raw or charred, and coffee made Miriam's way and full of little particles, the return to the shop, the morning paper, the standing, standing at the door saying, How do? to passers-by, or getting a bit of gossip or watching unusual visitors, all these things vanished 
as the auditorium of a theatre vanishes when the stage is lit. He acquired hundreds of books at last. Old, dusty books, books with torn covers and broken covers, fat books whose backs were naked string and glue, an inimical litter to Miriam. There was, for example, The Voyages of La Perouse, with many careful, explicit woodcuts, and the frankest revelations of the ways of the eighteenth-century sailor-man, homely, adventurous, drunken, incontinent and delightful, until he floated smooth and slow, with all sail set and mirrored in the glassy water, until his head was full of the thought of shining, kindly, brown-skinned women, who smiled at him and wreathed his head with unfamiliar flowers. He had, too, a piece of a book about the lost palaces of Yucatan, whose vast terraces buried in primordial forest, of whose makers there is now no human memory. With La Perouse he linked the Island Night's Entertainments, and it never palled upon him that in the dusky stabbing of the Island of Voices something poured over the stabber's hands like warm tea. Queer, incommunicable joy it is, the joy of the vivid phrase that turns the statement of the horridest fact to beauty. And another book which had no beginning for him was the second volume of the travels of the Abbe's Hugh and Gabet. He followed those two sweet souls from their lessons in Tibetan, under Sandura the Bearded, who called them donkeys to their infinite benefit, and stole their store of butter, through a hundred misadventures to the very heart of Lhasa, and it was a thirst in him that was never quenched to find the other volume, and whence they came, and who in fact they were. He read Fenimore Cooper and Tom Cringle's log side by side with Joseph Conrad, and dreamt of the many-hued humanities of the East and West Indies, until his heart ached to see those sun-soaked lands before he died. Conrad's prose had a pleasure for him that he was never able to define, a peculiar deep-coloured effect. He found, too, one day among the pile of soiled sixpenny books at Port Burdock, to which place he sometimes rode on his ageing bicycle, Bart Kennedy's A Sailor Tramp, all written in livid jerks, and had for ever after a kindlier and more understanding eye for every burly rough who slouched through Fishbourne High Street. Stern he read with a wavering appreciation and some perplexity, but, except for the Pickwick Papers, for some reason that I do not understand, he never took at all kindly to Dickens. Yet he liked Lever, and Thackeray's Catherine, and all Dumas, until he got to the Vicomte de Bragelon. I am puzzled by his insensibility to Dickens, and I record it, as a good historian should, with an admission of my perplexity. It is much more understandable that he had no love for Scott, and I suppose it was because of his ignorance of the proper pronunciation of words that he infinitely preferred any prose to any metrical writing. 
A book he browsed over with recurrent pleasure was Waterton's Wanderings in South America. He would even amuse himself by inventing descriptions of other birds in the Watonian manner, new birds that he invented, birds with peculiarities that made him chuckle when they occurred to him. He tried to make Rusper, the ironmonger, share his joy. He read Bates, too, about the Amazon, but when he discovered that you could not see one bank from the other, he lost, through some mysterious action of the soul that, again, I cannot understand, at least a tithe of the pleasure he had taken in that river. But he read all sorts of things. A book of old Celtic stories, collected by Joyce, charmed him, and Milford's Tales of Old Japan, and a number of paper-covered volumes, Tales from Blackwood, that he had acquired at Easewood, remained a standby. He developed a quite considerable acquaintance with the plays of William Shakespeare, and in his dreams he wore Sanxento, or Elizabethan clothing, and walked about a stormy, ruffling, taverning, teeming world. Great land of sublimated things, thou world of books! Happy asylum, refreshment, and refuge from the world of every day. The essential thing of those fifteen long years of shopkeeping is Mr. Polly, well athwart the counter of his rather ill-lit shop, lost in a book, or rousing himself with a sigh to attend to business. Meanwhile he got little exercise. Indigestion grew with him until it ruled all his moods. He fattened and deteriorated physically. Moods of distress invaded and darkened his skies. Little things irritated him more and more, and casual laughter ceased in him. His hair began to come off until he had a large bald space at the back of his head. Suddenly, one day it came to him, forgetful of those books and all he had lived and seen through them, that he had been in his shop for exactly fifteen years that he would soon be forty, and that his life during that time had not been worth living, that it had been in apathetic and feebly hostile and critical company, ugly in detail and mean in scope, and that it had brought him at last to an outlook utterly hopeless and grey. End of chapter 7, section 1